All right. You're at church, so I know you brought your Bibles. So open them to 2 Thessalonians. Uh, how many of you had a movie uh, that you like really, really, really thoroughly enjoyed, and then you heard that they were going to make like a sequel, and you were totally pumped for it, and you went and you saw the sequel, and it was a total bummer? Anybody done that? Like seen a sequel that just fell on its face? Well, God, God doesn't do that. He writes good sequels. And, and we're going to start into the sequel to 1 Thessalonians today. So, or, uh, yeah. So go ahead and turn to 2 Thessalonians. Confused myself right there. Uh, in the first book, uh, we saw primarily, um, some teaching from Paul to the church on the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, what that looks like. What does it look like for those who have fallen asleep in the Lord? Um, when Jesus returns, will they be there? Um, will they not be there? Um, and so he started into what we call uh, the study of, in things, eschatology, right? Um, and so that was movie number, number one, mostly. Uh, movie number two is going to just expound on that. It's not going to disappoint. Uh, he's going to get into more eschatology, He's going to get into more detail as far as things that surround uh, the return of Christ and the coming of the Lord, but we just can't do it today because we have to go through a greeting and then a thanksgiving first. So uh, we will end up getting there. I'm going to go ahead and read the text, chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. We're going to just take the first four verses is all, which says, Paul, Silvanus, does he have another name? Silas, right on, uh, which is better because it's less um, syllables. Uh, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves Boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness, for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So first, let's talk a little bit about the background of the second letter. Who wrote it? We don't have to guess. Uh, it was really Paul, and he had a couple dudes with him. I don't know if they actually spoke into some of what we have here, but they were definitely present uh, when Paul was putting this together, and that's uh, si uh, Paul, Silas, Timothy, all three of them. We have that in verse 1. There's no real reason to question this, even though higher critics will do that because they're just bored and they have nothing else to do. I, I believe it's exactly who uh, it says that it was. Are we all good with that? All right, let's move on then. Uh, it was written probably around A.D. 52 or 53, which is about the same time as the first letter, okay, which, which is weird. So it, it's actually not long after 1 Thessalonians. We're talking maybe a year removed from that first letter or even months removed um, from the first letter. And, and, and so the next question might be, why so quickly? Why did he write one letter and, it, and deal with these things and then turn right around and send another letter? And the reason why is because the church in Thessalonians was being played. They were being played right now by someone who was false, with some false information. And uh, when a church is being played, um, then, you know, the bear comes out 
and um, and you're going to you're going to take care of that church. And that's what Paul's doing. He turns around. He sends another letter. Uh, where do I get this from? Peek over to chapter two real quick. We'll hit verses one and two, which says now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So someone's telling tales outside of school here is what's going on. And yes, you can laugh. Oh, brother, where art thou? Uh, so uh, they, they were coming to the, the, the church in Thessalonica with things that were not true, as if it sounds like they were coming from Paul. Only they weren't coming from Paul. All right. So, so there was some uh, fraudulent, deceptive uh, info going around to this church. So Paul immediately sends a second letter. Um, but before he can really get into the, the meat of it, they need a greeting first. Uh, you can't you can't just get down to business with people that you love, even if you just talk to them, because that's rude. Uh, we, we have to welcome each other and love each other and impart blessing to each other first. Uh, me and my wife still uh, do this every day. I see her every day, uh, almost all day. But if I go and I come back, uh, we will start with a greeting, okay? Whether it be a hug or uh, a word of encouragement or something like that. That's just what you do with people that you love, right? You've got to welcome, you've got to accept, and you've got to bless them before you can get down to business. So this is what we see Paul do. And actually, this follows like his pattern. This is what he always does. Uh, in his epistles and his letters. Um, so this is kind of like trademark. All right. So uh, here's the greeting, verses 1 and 2. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of the Thess- uh, Thessalonians, and God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, again, we already, we already know and uh, commented on who wrote this. Um, and what this means is that they're all back together again at this point. Okay. I don't know if you caught that, but if we go back to Acts chapter 16, 17, Paul's second missionary journey, where he actually founded the church and planted the church uh, in Thessalonica, he had these two guys flanking him. All three of these guys were together. When he went to uh, Thessalonica for the first time, Silas and Timothy were with him. So this church, these people that he's writing to would have known these guys as well. They would have known these three uh, together. But what happened with Paul when he was in Thessalonians planting this church? He was only there roughly three weeks, maybe four weeks. It was a short amount of time. And then he got chased out. They stuck wanted posters all over the city, if you remember, for this guy because they hated him because he was turning their city upside down for the gospel. And so the authorities didn't like it. They chased him out. He gathers up Silas and Timothy, and they go down to Berea. What was Berea known for? What were the Bereans known for? Because they didn't just, just didn't just believe the word that was being brought to them when it came, but they searched the scriptures to make sure that all of it lined up together, right? And so that they were kind of noble that way. That's what the Bereans were known for, right? But then the Thessalonian authorities got word that Paul was down in Berea, and they hated him so much that they went ahead and sent a, 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 a lynch party down there to get him in Berea. And so he has to actually leave really quickly out of Berea, and he leaves Paul and Silas behind, and he goes across the sea um, and then waits for them later in uh, Athens. And so now we know at this point that at the time of this letter, uh, they're all at least together again. Okay, they're no longer. So I don't even know why I went into that whole history thing with you, but you're welcome. That's a bonus. So context, right? So. Um, I like to think that it's possible that he mentions Silas and Timothy, though, 
kind of. This is speculation. Obviously, I'm reading into this. Um, as a slight wink and a nod, maybe an authentication maybe, that this letter is different than the one you might have received by someone who claimed to be Paul. Because they knew who these two other people were. And so it's, it's very possible that this was just kind of a, uh, just an authenticative mark, uh, that, that he chose to put in there. Uh, who's here, here's who I'm with. This is the Paul that I am. And you can corroborate with them if you need to. Right? So, um, that's who the letter's from. Who's the letter to? Well, it's to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We know who the Thessalonians are. We just went through the first letter. We've talked a lot about the background and, and the church there and seen a lot of that. Uh, we're about to see more of it. But um, I actually want to take a few minutes here, um, since it's right in front of us, to speak to a different word in this greeting, in this sentence, that I think sometimes is just passed over a lot of times by us. And that is the word church. I want to speak to the word church for just a few. The word church in the original Greek language is the word, well, somebody, ekklesia. Thank you. Ekklesia. It's made up of two Greek words, ek, meaning out, and klesia, or klesia, meaning to call. So the word church means the called out. I want you to know that that's what you are. You are the called out. You do not belong to a club. This is not just another organization like other organizations on earth. You belong to something altogether special and different and supernatural. Altogether otherworldly, even. The living organism that we called the church are those who have been called out by the God of the universe to Himself. That's what you are. That's what this is right here. That's what's going on in this room. And, and so, what have we been called out of? Well, primarily, we've been called out of our sin. We've been called out of our, we've been called out of our, our bondage, our imprisonment to sin, death and Satan. In other words, when Jesus came and lived the life that He lived and died the death that He died and then rose and conquered death, he, he came down to the dungeon, to our cell, and He opened the door to that cell that you and I were locked in, and He let us out. We are now free from our sin. We are now forgiven from our sin. You and I are now positionally, fully, completely righteous positionally before God. Right now, we are righteous. We are saints. Yeah, we're still imperfect right now. We're in process as far as the process goes. But positionally, eternally, I want you to know that you have been called out of your sin finally, once for all, ultimately, permanently, eternally, and you are righteous in Him. This is what the church is. Even now. Even on earth. We are no longer what we used to be, we are now something different because of Him, not us. Because I know, if you're like me, there's a lot of days where it doesn't feel much different than it used to with how I think or how I act, but I am assured every single time that I come to the words of life, I am assured that it is finished concerning my sin. And you need to know that too. 
Okay. So uh, the, the, that's what the church is. We have been called out of our sin. And because we've been called out of our sin, um, in, in that sense, we've also um, been called out of the world. We've also been called out of the world, right? Um, however, and I want us to understand this, however, we have not been called out of the world to hide from it. We need to know this. We have not been called out of the world to hide from it. We've not been called out of the world to separate from it. or uh, And I'm talking physically. Um, or to run from it or to disappear from earth. Because we have been called out to call out. The church of God has been called out to call out. In other words, we were POWs that have been rescued, right? And now sent back to... Rescue more POWs. I don't know why God does this, but He uses us to accomplish that which He's doing in salvation and building His church. It makes no sense to me. It's like take your kid to work day. We, you know what I'm saying? Like we talked about this before. You know, where, where, where dad gets to take his kid to work and the kid gets to sit on his lap and like hit, hit the keys on the keyboard. You know what I mean? Or, or do whatever with dad. I don't know why God has done that, but He has. He has saved you and I to be a part of what He's doing. A part of His eternal plan. I don't know about you, but that's exciting. That's nothing to ignore or turn your nose up at. That we get to work with God in the eternal redemptive act that He is accomplishing. This is really what Romans chapter 10, I think it's verses right around 15 through 17, is talking about. Where Paul says, but how will they hear if, we don't, if they don't have a preacher? Right? This is you and I taking the good news, the words of life, which wakes people up and calls them out of their tomb, out of their cell of sin to life. And this is how the church grows. This is how uh, God in Christ has determined to build his church and build his kingdom. And so how are we doing with that? You and I have been called out uh, to call out. And this is why, honestly, this is why the church exists on earth. You hear us say this all the time. We are not primarily existing on earth to do what we're doing right now. You and I will be in some ridiculously good worship services for all eternity. We will know the truth. The singing. You know what I mean? Everything will be finally and utterly established. What can't we do when we get there? Share the words of life with someone who desperately needs it. This is why the church exists on earth. Why do we come together in gatherings like this? So that we can be built up. So that we can be equipped. So that we can be encouraged and charged to go out these doors for the other six days of the week and share the words of life with someone who desperately needs it. That's why we're here. All right. Paul goes on to say, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have the, the, the twin sisters of all of Paul's greetings, grace and peace. And when you think about it, there ain't a greater greeting that you could receive than this as a believer. I, I think, again, just like the word church, I think this is maybe a phrase uh, that he uses so often that it's easy for us to look over it and not even really pay attention to what exactly he's imparting to us here. But it's, uh, it's also nothing to blink at. There's not a greater greeting than this. When we greet someone we love, we are performing in word or in deed an expression of 
of welcome and acceptance, right? And, and blessing. And I, and I can think of no better welcome, acceptance, and blessing by someone than to be given a statement of absolute assurance in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, I don't know, I'm assuming that you need this. I need this every day. I need to hear, even from someone else, I think, I think they call it absolution in the Lutheran circles, that there is grace and peace from God to you. Because I like to think that there's still wrath and condemnation often, oftentimes, because I have to live in this. Right? And so we can get thrown off really quick with what's going on here and how God views me. And this greeting assures us of how God views those who are in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father. So, some of you are here today because you just need to hear that. You just need to be assured of that once more. And it's not because of anything that you can do or have done or will do. It's because of what He's done in His Son that there can be grace and peace to people like us. He's accomplished it all. He's done all of the heavy lifting so that you and I can be nothing but okay with Him. This, this statement, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is, is an assurance. It's an assurance of who I am to God. It's an assurance of who you are to God. It's an assurance of how God looks at me now. How He views me. It's an assurance of how God has received me. He has received me. He, does, he, he will not approve of me any more than He does right now in this moment because of what Christ has done nor you. There is no more approval to be had. Paul then, he goes on and he, he continues, as is his custom after the greeting, to thanksgiving. All right. So he, he's going to verbally express that which he's thankful for uh, concerning this church. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time Today, obviously, verses 3 and 4, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. There are three standouts here that we're going to focus on. Okay? Those being... Their faith, circle that word. I mean, if you don't have a really nice Bible, circle that word. Their faith is growing abundantly. Their love, circle that word. For one another is increasing. Their steadfastness, circle that word. And their persecutions and afflictions, um, is in, they're enduring. They're, they're suffering well. They're suffering well. All right. So first, their faith is growing abundantly. What does this mean? How does one's faith grow abundantly? How can you grow abundantly in your faith? And I would submit that Romans 10.17 is probably the, the best prescription that we have for this, which says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. By the Word of God. So here we have the source of faith as well as the fuel. Right? That which um, ignites it and causes it to spread. 
It's the Word of God. It's, it's not rocket science. The more that you hear this, the more that you hear the Word of God, the more you will grow in this. That's the way it works. It ain't a trick. The more that this goes in, the more that, that this, this goes up. That's how it happens. So, so in this sense, like we are what we eat. Okay? Like spiritually. We are, we are what we eat. Garbage in, garbage out. If you're sitting around all day or most of your time with hearing things, uh, or people that are divisive or negative or angry, I promise you, I promise you it will come out somehow, some way. That will come out of you. Right? On the flip side of that, if you're spending time in something that is good and pure and true and noble and honorable, right? What is it? Philippians chapter 4. Whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, whatever is excellent and worthy of praise, think on these things. Because they will have an impact on you and they will come out. Right? This is, this is what basically we're, we're talking about here. If you truly want to increase in your faith, go to Bible studies. If you're not plugged into a local church first, plug into a local church. Okay? Don't just be a, a tourist. Not because there's like a rule against that, but like the Bible really encourages us to be consistently in a place where we can be known by others and know others. I get why people don't want to. But this is what the prescription is. Okay? Plug into a Bible study where you are hearing your Bible on different levels and growing in that. Sin under good teaching and preaching. It's a good way to grow in your faith. Right? Read your Bible. I mean, we're Americans. I get this. We have 20 Bibles in every room of our house and we don't ever pick them up. Pick it up. Pick it up. You'll increase in your faith. Memorize Scripture. Right? This is one that seems to be maybe kind of lost. Take the Word of God everywhere you go, regardless of what you're doing. You can be performing heavy labor at your job, and you could be increasing in your faith at the same time because you've committed Scripture to memory. Right? Place yourself around other truth-tellers. This is a big one that I think we overlook. Just like the garbage in, garbage out, it matters what you're paying attention to, what you're spending time in, especially with just friends and people, relationships in your life. Surround yourself with truth-tellers. And by truth-tellers, I mean people that hold to and esteem the Word of God above all else. That's what I mean. Um, There are so many resources at our fingertips every single day that you and guy that you and I have available more than any other time in the history of the church. It's like staggering. Um, if you if you listen to last week's table talk, which is no longer table talk, but one decent pastor, th- we did a resource dump for you. Uh, if you didn't go listen to it, I, I suggest you go back and listen to it. The resource dump means that your pastor sat around and talked about everything that we utilize to increase our faith, and to grow and mature in our walks as Christians. So yeah, we need to be continually educated as well. 
and we basically shared all those resources that we use, the guys that we love to read, the guys that we love to uh, hear preach, the study resources uh, that we go to, um, the movies or documentaries or, you know, media, um, podcasts, all that stuff. We just dumped it all out there. And I think if you guys go and you listen to it, you will have a ton of options. And these are all things that you can utilize throughout your day and throughout your life to help increase your faith. Like God has not given us a shortage of things, right? So. What does it ultimately mean that we increase in the faith? Is that, does that mean that we're increasing in knowledge so we're getting smarter so that we can win more arguments against heathen? No. It means that we're growing closer to God. We're growing closer to God. That's the point. That's why it matters. And so I would ask, how are you doing, Christian? How are you doing with immersing yourself in the Word of God? How are you doing with creating and facilitating and protecting a lifestyle of prioritizing God's Word? The Thessalonian... The, wow! Twice! Ding, ding! The Thessalonian church was a church committed to the truth of God's Word and it was evidenced by their ongoing maturity in the faith. And Paul gives thanks for this. What a great thing for a pastor to see. There's very little that encourages our hearts more than to see people grow in their faith, grow in their relationship with the Lord. Next, he gives thanks because their love for one another is increasing. And it doesn't seem like it's just one or two people in this church uh, that this is happening with because he says the love of every one of you towards each other. So there's a movement going on in this church. Like God, like the Holy Spirit is up to something in the church of Thessalonica. I'm just going to have trouble with the, the TH all day now. I don't know what's up with that. But this is a collective movement that's going on, right? A unified movement, a movement of the Holy Spirit of God. What an awesome thing for, for Paul to see this happening here. You know why? Because it assures him that this is Jesus's church filled with Jesus's people. How do we increase in our love for one another? How does that happen and what does it mean? Do you know? It happens by copying Jesus. We increase in our love one for another by copying Jesus. In other words, you have permission to plagiarize and copy all that you possibly can, right? He gives us this permission. John 13, 34 through 35, or both, he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. So he, he's saying, my life, my words, my conduct, my actions is a blueprint. Study that blueprint and build love for others off of that, right? So, so the more that we're spending time with Christ, the more that you and I are amazed by his life and his teachings, the more that it will affect us in our ability to love others. So a church that's doing this is a church where Jesus is present, right? He says, uh, he says, uh, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. 
there in John 13 again. And, he, and then he says, by this, all people will know. By this, love that we have for others, not ourselves, for others, other people will sit up and take notice. They will know that you are my followers. This is a mark of, of one who follows the Lord. And it seems the Thessalonian church was, was marked. The church committed to collectively loving each other, and it was something that they were apparently getting better and better at. Paul gives thanks for this, right? Just an awesome thing. And then finally, Paul gives thanks because their steadfastness and, and faith and all their persecutions and then their afflictions that they are enduring. So he's grateful that they are suffering well, finally. That's the third thing. He's grateful that they're suffering well. But not only is he grateful for this, He's boasting about it. He's bragging about this to others, to other churches. Almost like a proud dad, right? When he pulls out his wallet and he just wants to show off pictures of his kids, right? Like, like check this out. Like, check out my kid. This, this is like kind of like what he's doing with the other churches. He's like, check out my kids over here. Check out what they're about. Check out how they're doing. Check out who they are. It's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty neat thing. Um, he brags to other people. He brags to other churches. In other words, suffering well, which you and I don't know a lot about. It is such a powerful testimony of the evidence of God residing in a people that Paul has to share it. He has to spread it abroad. When, when, think about it this way. When one is growing in the faith, uh, we can look at that and we can go, that's cool. That's an awesome thing, like we already talked about, right? That's a cool thing. When one is growing in their love for others, we can look at that and go, how awesome is that? How cool is that that that's going on, right? But when one suffers well under persecution and hardship, the world looks at that and goes, what in the world is that? What in the world is that? It looks so unusual, so alien and it's so powerful. It's so strong. And the reason it is so unique is because it cannot be attributed to the effort of the human who is suffering. It is not human for a human to have someone completely come against them and do them wrong. And for that person to respond with love, kindness, grace. Fully. doesn't make sense. It's alien. It's not a natural human response to being treated bad. And yet these guys were doing that. So, so we know that there's something more than them doing this, pulling this off in their own strength going on here. And we know that it's the power of Christ in them. It is not them, it is the power of Christ in them, allowing the testimony of Christ to come out of them by suffering well. And it is something for people to sit up and take notice of and to investigate. This is uh, the whole context of that first Peter chapter three um, uh, verse. What is it? Be, be prepared, be ready to give to every man to answer a defense. It's where we get the word apolog uh, apologetics from. Um, uh, for the reason of the hope that lies within you. That's the whole context. Peter is writing to a church there that is suffering heavy, heavy persecution from the highest authorities as well as the citizens. Why? Because they follow Jesus. 
So, so they're not just like uh, someone like uh, got mad at them because they cut them off in a car or something like that. You know, like the next door neighbor hates that they have a dog that barks all the time. Like these people are being hated and targeted in heavy ways because they follow Jesus. And Peter encourages them there in chapter 3 to suffer well. And then he says, get ready and be ready. Because these people are going to come and investigate how you were able to suffer well, and you need to be, I want you to be able to give them a reason for the hope that lies within you. So, so that whole statement is not in the context of, oh, if you're a Christian, learn all the best arguments again so that you can win, you know, fights with non-believers. The whole context is that as we suffer well, as we do not repay evil for evil as followers of Christ, they will notice. And when they notice, they will come and ask us, what in the world is going on? And you and I then say, he's going on. He's going on in me. Let me share that with you. Right? One of our, in other words, one of our biggest, greatest testimonies that we have is to suffer well. That sucks, huh? That's horrible that that's the one. That's the one. And like I said, like you and I, we haven't really had to experience that much here. It's coming, though. It's coming. So you need to gorge, you need to increase in your faith more and you need to increase in your love for others more so that when that time comes, you will suffer well. And then you will have a testimony of the power of Christ in you. Right? And so this is a big deal. Uh, and that, and that is, th- this is the climate of, of this church as well. Not just what was going on to the church that Peter was writing to, but in Thessalonica. These guys were getting hit hard. They were being pressed on by every side because, simply because they loved Jesus. Jobs lost, families lost, sometimes lives lost. I mean, we're talking about the hardest things. And they were dealing with it and they were suffering well. Not repaying evil for evil in that. Right? It, it is the most powerful head turner that I think we have as followers of Jesus. And it's something for a pastor or a leader like Paul to boast about. Um, when he sees his people walking through that, coming out of that the other side. And so we have these three things here, these three attributes of the Thessalonican church that Paul is grateful for. But I want to submit to you that in these three praises, I believe that we have something much greater than just three praises happening here. I think we have something far more profound and yet so simple that we can miss it. And um, this is what I want us to close out on and spend the rest of our time on today. Um, there is a... I need some water before I do this. There is a, um, a judgment, a, a perception that goes on in the mind of the Christian when sizing up a church, a local faith community, It is one that especially comes up when one is looking for a church to join or looking to find a new one or when evaluating the one that they're in. It is a perception that goes on in the mind of a pastor, even. Um, It weighs heavy on him. It actually haunts him. It looms over his thoughts and it looms over his efforts And it's a perception that plays with his identity and his self-worth and his sense of accomplishment 
It brings in to question the very validity of his entire ministry. And that perception is in how one defines a successful church. Be honest. What immediately comes to mind when you think of what makes a church successful? Don't say it out loud. Don't embarrass yourself. Even though we all agree with you, probably. What immediately comes to mind when you think of what makes a church successful? Here's what I often think. Buzz. Excitement. Popularity. Population. Facility. Programs offered. Presentation. State-of-the-art technology. Talent. Right? Social media presence. Marketing. All that good stuff. And, 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 And this is only proven to be more true by the emails that I receive every single week in my inbox as a pastor. Every single day from a different company from day to day who make all their money on trying to make you money by being a more successful pastor with a more successful church. They're going to teach you how to better be polished and professional and sexy and appealing in every way so that your church will grow. These are the emails I get every single week. And it's big business. Like these, these people are in this business because they're making money in this business. Because churches are buying that formula. This is how we function now. This is the way that we think. At some point I have to ask myself, what do each of these things that I mentioned have in common? Answer, appearance. Outward appearance. Every one of them. Outward appearance. Not only are these all appearance-driven perceptions of success, but they're also attraction-driven. And I'm cool with both if the point is to get people to Jesus. Like, do whatever. But is it? Is that what we're doing? Or has it become something else? Is it to fill a building so that we can feel successful? so that we can feel like we're achieving something great. The fact is the majority of the biggest, most populated, most exciting, most program offering, most polished and talented and cutting edge churches in America today are not biblically solid ones. I'm not saying there's not any good big churches. I'm just saying when you look at the majority of the ones, especially the ones filling arenas, the biggest of the biggest, there is no substance biblically. And yet, because these outward attractional characteristics have proven to grow a church and to draw a crowd, it is a temptation. It is a temptation to copy that model. The last year and a half, two years, has been tough. I was looking at a picture the other day that was taken from in the cage, I don't know, like four years ago. It was just a worship service. And it was wall to wall. There wasn't an empty seat in this place. People, I remember, would even stand back in that hallway area. This is the whole reason why we started thinking about how to grow out and plant a church is because we knew we had to grow somehow. Like we were maxed out here. 
And I look at it now, and I could take that suit, that same picture, and there's more empty seats in here than there are full seats. Just prior to COVID, we went down to Lapine to plant a church. It was averaging 80 people a week as a brand new church plant. Now, maybe 30. You have no idea how many times I sit around and put my face in my hands and want to buy into these formulas. And I'm just being honest with you. Because I know that if I do, they work. I I know how to build a church just like other people know how to build a church if we use the formula that churches are using. But I don't want to come to that. I don't know how many Sundays over the last couple years where I've walked in on a Sunday morning and instead of having a worshipful attitude, I've had one of um, frustration (laughs) and anxiety because I've started to focus on these superficial things that don't matter, right? So how's the sound going to go off today? Are we going to have problems? How's the worship team going to do? Is it going to be appealing? Is the live stream going to run? Is the sermon going to record? Are the words going to be right on the screen while we're singing the songs? And it goes on and on and on. It never ends. Because you've got to put out a good product if you're going to fill your seats and have them return. And it has robbed me of my ability to come here and worship the risen Jesus with you guys because my mind has been hijacked on superficial nonsense so that I can feel like I'm succeeding And it's false. And I'm over it. I'm tired. And I get a text like this, which I was not excited to preach, because it's a greeting and then a couple lines of thanksgiving. And it's just, it's the part that we skip over in our epistles to get to the good part. And I'm like, what a great text. And then I see this. The light bulb goes on. And God says, look at here, young man. I got something to show you. This is what a successful church looks like. They did not have sound systems. They did not have video. They were not streaming nothing. There was no amplification, right? And and I'm thankful for that stuff. I mean, this is the world we live in, the time we live in, so the church takes that and it utilizes it. I get all that. But, but these guys turn the world upside down with none of it. Here's what made them successful and effective. They increased in faith. They increased in the love for one another. They suffered well. That's a successful church. Regardless of all the dressing that goes on it, that we put, all the makeup that we put on it, that's a successful church. Always has been, always will be. And so God slapped me a little bit so that I could once again see clearly, because I was not seeing clearly in my frustration and my desperation. It's so easy to get caught up in what's considered a successful church and what builds one today. I even think of Jesus I mean, what Jesus did, really, when you look back at it, must have been considered like a colossal failure in ways, right? Not only because of it ended in 
murder on a cross, right? Um, but like even his ministry. Like this dude started with 12. He sent 11. He knew how to draw a crowd. He knew how to draw a crowd. But what would he do? He didn't hoard them and be like, oh, this is rad, let's keep going. No, he would like dip out on them. Like he would like disappear after he preached. And they wouldn't be able to find him. He, he was content with flipping the world upside down with 11 guys. Guys who had no business being effective at all. Why? So that we can all know that he did it. Not them. We know that he builds his church. Not us. All right? Remember the church of Laodicea, book of Revelation, chapter 3, final church, getting the report card? You are neither hot nor cold. Remember that? You say that you are rich, but you are poor. You say that I have no need of anything because I have created and established everything that I need myself. And he pulls the covers on that. Where is Jesus with that church as you get down that letter? Outside. He's outside knocking, saying, can I come in? Is it, is it cool if I do worship service with you? And it wasn't for them. Because of what they were able to accomplish for themselves. And I pray to God that I never become like them. And I pray to God that you don't either. That Jesus is never standing outside this church knocking on the door saying, is it cool if I come in? I have found by reading my Bible, and I am convinced of on most days, on a good day, that it, it doesn't matter how many people are in the seats of your local congregation. What really matters to the Lord is what's going on in the lives of the people that are in the seats in your congregation. This is what we're talking about here with this church. Um, anyone familiar with Voice of the Martyrs? Close with this. Um, so they put out a publication like every month. We've been getting it for years and years and years. And um, there was this one that really struck me. It came out like five years ago. And it was a, a, an American pastor of a, of a very successful church um, that had decided um, he had this desire to go to China and to visit the underground church and to really understand and experience what the underground church was like in China. And so he did. He connected with this Chinese pastor, and he went over for about a month um, and just shadowed this dude, just crawled into his pocket and did what he did and just took it all in, right? And it was it was um, pretty extreme, his experience. You know, it was like the six miles to church, uphill both ways, in a blizzard type of thing. Like these people had to work to get together and worship Jesus. And a lot of times it would be, you know, in crawl spaces or a very, um, you know, uncomfortable uh, areas, and they didn't care. They would walk long distances to get there. They would go to great lengths to get there to be uncomfortable for hours as they maybe held a page or two pages or ten pages of Isaiah to read and to worship the Lord. And he recalls one of the final nights before he left to come back where this Chinese pastor leaned over to him at one point in their candle-lit, flashlight, crawl space, service going on, 
leaned over to this American pastor and said, I pray that one day we will be more like you, meaning our church, more like your American church. To which the American pastor leaned over and responded, and I pray that one day we will be more like you. And this is what we're talking about. No convolution, no clutter, no dressing, no superficial nonsense that takes us away from Christ, but just what we're seeing right here. Our prayer is that we may increase in our faith, that we will increase in our love to one another, and that we will suffer well when it comes. All to the glory of God. Because that is a successful church. Lord, thank you for this letter, uh, which once again, first and foremost, set me straight and rebuked me this week and last week from just stupid thinking. And I ask your forgiveness for that stupid thinking, for the um, temptation to play the game. Uh, we trust you and we need nothing more than you. And so I, I, I pray that we would be completely and utterly fixed on that truth. You are enough. And you know how to grow your church better than any of us do. And so we commit it to you, God. Help us to stay behind you. Help us to trust you. To have faith. And help us to seek your approval, first and foremost, above anybody else's. Help us to care more about what you think than what others think. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.